Hello and welcome to Cocoa Pods, a podcast of the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. This is where we talk about all the issues about the health of a mother. My name is Dr. Bola Sugade. I'm a birth certified obstetrician gynecologist, a family physician, a minimally invasive robotic gynecologic surgeon, and a proponent for natural childbirth. Today, we are fortunate to have with us Dr. Gerald Tawanda Tarira. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Tarira. Thank you for having me. Dr. Tarira graduated from the University of Zimbabwe College of Health Sciences in 2000. He works primarily in Macon, Georgia, and he actually just moved to a brand new location. He is the Chief Medical Director of Southern Lung Center. He specializes in critical care medicine, internal medicine, pulmonary critical care, pulmonary diseases, and sleep medicine. Dr. Terreira is affiliated with local hospitals in the middle Georgia area. Dr. Terreira, talking about breathing and on a somewhat lighter note, why do normal pregnant women seem like they pant or breathe fast or are breathless all the time in their pregnancy or later in the pregnancy? Yeah, so uh, as a pulmonologist, actually, this is a, a very important question. We should be able to check what are called pulmonary function tests in patients who are pregnant, meaning we're trying to measure the different parts of the a woman's ventilation. Say if I am seeing a patient who is pregnant, I need to know what changes happen in pregnancy. The changes that we see in pregnancy is really we see a higher respiratory rate, and this higher respiratory rate is driven mainly by progesterone. And when you have more progesterone, you seem to be you're breathing faster, so you have a higher minute ventilation. We don't really see much of a change in the tidal volume, meaning how much volume the patient is able to breathe in and out. Because of the expanding uterus, we have a decrease in the expiratory reserve volume. So the uterus is pushed up on the lungs. The lungs are of smaller volume. We see an increase in minute ventilation. Why are all these changes interesting and important for a pulmonologist seeing a pregnant patient? We don't want people to overreact when they see abnormal numbers. We know that a pregnant woman is breathing faster, so we see that her carbon dioxide level tends to be lower. We always worry in the pregnant patient about pulmonary embolism. So if we always keep in mind that the pregnant patient breathes faster and has a lower carbon dioxide level, we adjust our minds to what we can think of for that patient. So this is all hormonally driven and is also coming from that expanding uterus. And is it the fact that the diaphragm actually moves up about uh, five centimeters with the enlarging uterus? Yes, yes, that is a well-known fact. We see that the diaphragm continues progressively up and we see a decrease in that expiratory reserve volume. The functional reserve volume actually is somewhat maintained in a pregnant patient. It's very interesting physiology. Interesting. So pregnant women could actually retain fluid in their lungs, though, as pulmonary edema. 
at times when we use certain medications, like we call them tocolytic medications to to stop preterm contractions, that can increase the risk of fluid retention in the pulmonary system. Or, you know, if a woman has a cardiac disease or or if she has uh, multiple gestation like twins or if she has um, some infection, all these things can increase the retention of uh, fluid in the lungs. I mean, from a pulmonologist's point of view, you know, we're also giving IV fluids at times. How can we diagnose or manage the fact that the woman has actually retained fluid in her lungs and is not just breathing fast from a physiologic or normal condition of pregnancy? So we do know that pregnancy does induce a significant stress on the pulmonary system. And we commonly see this element of pulmonary edema, meaning fluid has come out of the intravascular system and is leaking out into the lungs. And as it leaks out into the lungs, it causes the lungs to fill up and they are what we call stretch receptors in the lungs. And those stress receptors tell the brain there is something in the lung, let's breathe it out. As those stretch receptors are told more and more, the patient tends to breathe faster and faster. Now, what are the things that we have noticed that seem to induce more leakage of fluid into the lung? The use of tocolytic medications. We see that about 50% of cases occur Mm -hmm. secondary to those tocolytics or cardiac disease meaning heart failure. We do know that there are many underlying pregnancy can induce a cardiomyopathy and that cardiomyopathy will lead to pulmonary edema. Of course, I'll leave that to the cardiologist to discuss. We also see that pulmonary edema is more common in patients with multiple gestations or patients with maternal infections. And also there appears to be some association between pulmonary edema and the high magnesium tocolytics that we use or the use of intravenous fluid. Of course, if we give fluid to a patient and they have leaky capillaries, that fluid is going to leak into the lungs and cause them to breathe faster. All right, so thank you. But now, asthma in pregnancy. You know, asthma could easily be identified as one of the most common medical conditions that can complicate a pregnancy. And although most pregnant women with asthma have controlled disease, some women may experience exacerbation or worsening of their disease, necessitating immediate intervention. What are the interrelations between asthma and pregnancy? A very interesting question. Uh, I see a lot of pregnant asthmatics in my practice. Uh, The basic information that I tell them is one-third of patients, their asthma is actually get better in pregnancy. One-third is going to get worse, and one-third stays about the same. Now, what do we do for these uh, pregnant asthmatics? We do what is called serial spirometry. So when they come to the office, I am going to measure their lung volumes and I'm going to estimate how much obstruction they have from the testing we do. 
the medications which are indicated in pregnancy have certain classes, and you can't use all medications in pregnant patients unless they get approved by the FDA. What I can say for you for asthma, a major change in the recent guidelines, previously we could only use something called budesonide or cuva. And uh, cuva is usually given twice a day. But what's come out after following asthmatics over long periods is that when they are controlled on certain inhaled corticosteroids combined with long-acting uh, better agonists like Advia and they get pregnant, the question usually was for us whether or not we need to stop the Advia put them on Cuba. But after serial monitoring over years and years, no one has seen increasing side effects. So Advia, Sembicort, all most Labalama combinations now have a category C recommendation. Which is but, you can use which in, you can use in pregnancy. pregnancy. But of course Cuba remains the main entity. And why am I emphasizing that? The inhaled corticosteroid is the main controller medication that we need to use in as pregnant asthmatic patients. Pregnant asthmatic patients need to be followed up on a regular basis, pre-delivery and post-delivery. Typically, we're seeing them every two months. Also, after delivery, we probably see them every two months until the sixth month and then they go back to their usual care. It is very important for physicians to recognize that asthma can worsen in pregnancy and can have a bad effect on the outcome of the mother and the fetus. So close monitoring is very much advised. Wow, 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 thank you. You know, there are some pulmonary conditions that can affect a woman in pregnancy that can actually be very dangerous and very life-threatening. And I think you might have alluded to this in the past, but one of them is forming a blood clot in the lung. And that is called pulmonary thromboembolism. And we have said that just being pregnant itself increases the risks of um, forming a blood clot period. What are some of these things that, uh, other things that increase the risk of a woman forming a blood clot that can actually progress to her lungs? This is one of the most dangerous things, pulmonary conditions that could happen in pregnancy. Pulmonary embolism is one of the most feared complications in pregnancy. It becomes very difficult to control for once it's occurred. So, of course, there's been a lot of data and a lot of research into what predisposes patients to ending up with clots. Factors that have been noted include obesity, older age, a family history or personal history of a prior clot, people with inherited thrombophilias, people with the antiphospholipid syndrome, a history of trauma, and you know, pregnancy and delivery are traumatic, and uh, a history of C-section delivery. Actually, the incidence of uh, clots actually increases six weeks postpartum. What happens is if you have a clot during pregnancy, we have to start you on medications to prevent new clots from forming, and typically we have to continue those 
postpartum at least six weeks, you will need to be on anticoagulation of some form, depending on what uh, your physician is uh, favors. There is a fivefold increase in in a pulmonary thromboembolism during pregnancy. And what are the reasons? The reasons is when you're pregnant, you have a hypercoagulable state, and also you have low-grade chronic DIC within the placental bed, meaning you have a low-grade kind of clotting going on in the placental bed. And then one of the other risks is just not being mobile. You talked about yeah. that, immo- yes. immobility. Yes, immobility yeah. is yes. a big one. Yeah. So one of your areas of specialization is also in sleep disorders. And the obstetric patient, they've been under-recognized as a population at risk for sleep-disordered breathing, a condition with a spectrum from mild snoring to actual obstructive sleep apnea, which is the most severe form of sleep-disordered breathing. Can you just, in your terms, talk to us about, you know, the current ways to diagnose and maybe to treat these conditions in a pregnant population? Thank you. Sleep disorders, breathing is really underappreciated in pregnancy due to a number of factors, including things like uh, limited provider education the lack of reliable screening tools, and the need for additional studies in characterizing the dynamic effect of pregnancy on sleep-disordered breathing and perinatal outcomes. The most common risk factors why we are seeing a lack of recognition of sleep-disordered breathing by clinicians is because most studies that establish that diagnosis of sleep-disordered breathing had excluded women of reproductive age. We also noted that we have complications in understanding how to screen and who to screen and who to make the diagnosis on. So when we look at sleep-disordered breathing, basically we do a couple of things. We have some underlying questionnaires that we can use to kind of make or lead us on to the diagnosis. The questions I would ask that pregnant mother, when I see her, I ask her questions about, do you snore? When you wake up, do you feel well rested? Also, has anybody ever said you stop breathing at night? Another element we ask about is early morning headaches. So basically with those four questions, we kind of pick up on who likely has sleep apnea. We also use something called the Epworth Sleepliness Scale. And that is a a form that a patient will fill out. It has 24 factors. And usually if you score about 10, we think obstructive sleep apnea. When we suspect it, what we're able to do is called a sleep study. Now, sleep studies have advanced. We're able to do sleep studies at home. You essentially get the kit, you take it home, it's a little band that goes around your head and it monitors your breathing pattern and also electrical activity as you sleep. And we are able to make a diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea from that. Once we have made that diagnosis, then we can recommend 
treatment, which usually is something we call CPAP, which is a mask that goes over your face and basically uh, keeps your airway open. And as your airway is open, you do not suffer from the effect of sleep apnea, which would include worsening of hypertension in that pregnant woman. So you talked about current recommendations to treat these women will include, you called it CPAP, which is a continuous positive airway pressure method. And, and despite the fact that we have limited data on that, also we know that pregnant women with this diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea, they are at significantly increased risk of having cardiac conditions like enlarged hearts, cardiomyopathy, heart failure, pulmonary embolism that is forming a clot in the lungs, and also in-hospital death. And these effects are made worse by the presence of obesity. And then postpartum, the women are at risk for respiratory suppression, and they should be monitored. Yes, this is correct. So pulmonary hypertension is a rare disorder, but can be present in women of childbearing age and can be very, very serious. Why is this? Yes. So what pulmonary hypertension is, is an increase of blood pressure within the lungs. The body has two sides to it. It has a circulation that goes throughout the body, but also it has a circulation that goes into the lung. And so you literally have two blood pressures. And typically we only measure the peripheral blood pressure circulation. We don't actually measure the pulmonary artery pressures. But when we do, and we find that pressure is above 20 mils, which is the new definition of pulmonary artery hypertension, then we start getting worried. Now, that is in the normal non-pregnant patient. When the patient becomes pregnant, you increase the amount of volume in your system. As we see, usually when we see pregnant women, sometimes their feet are swollen. The reason their feet are swollen is because there's more volume of blood in your system when you're pregnant. And that volume of blood not only flows throughout your peripheral circulation, but it goes into your pulmonary circulation. Now, imagine you have high blood pressure already in the lungs, and then now you are putting more volume into it. All that fluid is going to leak out into your lungs, your lungs are going to have pulmonary edema. You're not going to be able to breathe. We have to put you on a ventilator. And of course, because the baby still needs that fluid to still have a blood pressure, we cannot acutely try to lower the blood pressure in your lungs. So yes, significant mortality for pulmonary hypertension patients, about estimated, I think, 10 to 50% mortality. When we see pregnant patients with this condition, there is some medications which have been shown in the long-term studies to work. Epiprostenol, which is IV, which is indicated in pregnancy, is probably the only medication which we can clearly safely use because it's IV, meaning the patient will have to have a pump, 
So that's a complication. And also, it's easily treatable, meaning you can turn it on and off. It has a short half-life, three to five minutes. So that's one of the only medications we can use in pregnancy. So yes, pulmonary artery hypertension is a major contraindication for pregnancy, but if it's something that a woman wants or desires to be pregnant, she probably has to see a high-risk obstetrician while she's pregnant. Yeah, and actually in obstetrics, we consider pulmonary hypertension as a contraindication for pregnancy because that maternal mortality is just unacceptably high. Yes, thank you for that information. Still talking on this long issue, air embolism. So we talked about clots embolizing, getting into the forming in the system. What about if air and or amniotic fluid, that is, uh, you know, the fluid around the baby, what if it gets from where it's not supposed to be into the circulation? What are the effects of both venous air embolism and amniotic fluid embolism? Can you speak to some of those for us? Yes. Uh, So when we have amniotic fluid, which is really fetal cells and other antigenic material enter maternal circulation or circulation of the mother via a breach of that maternal-fetal interface, there is abnormal activation of immunological and humoral processes with the release of vasoactive substances and procoagulant substances. Essentially, this is the same thing that happens in sepsis. It's material that goes into your bloodstream and your bloodstream does not recognize it. The tissues in the bloodstream do not recognize it. And because it's foreign, they try to attack it. But as they attack it, there is a release of chemicals that lead to vasodilation meaning the blood vessels become bigger. So you end up having a low blood pressure. So that it presents in the same way as sepsis again. So we're kind of going back to the same topic that we talked about, where all your tissues, the blood vessels are too, are enlarged. There's no good blood pressure going in, so you start having organ failure. Whether it's air or it's fetal tissue, We still have that hyperactive response, which leads to blood vessels getting bigger. When this arises during labor or soon after delivery, we do have to work based on our clinical findings, and we have to exclude sepsis, right, with amniotic fluid embolism and also with air embolism. When patients are pregnant and we see an acute sudden change in terms of their blood pressure, where they have a cardiovascular collapse, or when they present with acute respiratory failure, and sometimes seizures, we have to think of amniotic fluid embolism. It's a very life-threatening diagnosis. The cases uh, which I've seen personally have not had very good outcomes. When we have maternal fetal tissue, in the blood vessels, you stimulate the disseminated intervascular coagulation. And when you have disseminated intervascular coagulation, meaning 
this tissue in your system is causing the body to form clots. So if you are clotting everywhere, clotting in your brain, you have a stroke, clotting in your heart, you have a heart attack, clotting in your kidneys, you have kidney failure. So it's a very dangerous condition for the mother and the baby. Wow, 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 thank you. Uh, you know, just before we go on, you managed actually a case of amniotic fluid embolism. Yes. I mean, can you just speak to an actual case? Because it's not a common condition in obstetrics. and But you had the privilege of managing some cases. What, what did this entail? Yes. So I saw this case when I was doing fellowship. It was a younger lady. It was a second pregnancy. We were at uh, Coney Island Hospital. This lady presented uh, post-delivery. From what we can recall, initially we had been asked to see her for fetal monitoring. There was a question. She had had a baby before. There was a complication with the baby. So the tendency at that hospital was anybody who had a prior complication comes to the ICU. She collapsed, blood pressure changed suddenly from where we are having normal blood pressure to almost nothing. Luckily, she was already in the ICU for fetal monitoring, and we managed to get her on a ventilator. We managed to get her on IV fluids. I was a fellow at the time. She was very difficult to manage. Did she make it? uh, She did not, unfortunately, make it. Mm. Yeah, in the ICU in the setting. ICU setting. Yeah, yeah. The reason why she was in the ICU was just because of what had happened prior. Oh, yeah. It yeah. was not a case where we went to find her. Wow. She was already there. Wow. Yeah. When I trained Brooklyn, Coney Island had four beds reserved only for obstetric patients. So I I had quite a lot of experience with that and the collaboration that was necessary with the obstetricians and others who were following up, especially on the mother. Mm. We focused on the mother, the baby. Mm-hmm. You know, we just, of course, we had a fetal monitor, but we really didn't even look at that. They had neonatologists who would remotely see that. So it was quite an experience. <laughs> so is a sudden cardiovascular collapse yes. that makes you so, yeah, just from maybe a normal blood pressure to, to boom, to, to, almost to nothing, nothing. To nothing. Wow. Nothing. I mean, it was sudden. Dr. Tarera, this is great. You know, as we're closing, I want you to talk about two more issues. There's aspiration, you know, that is, you know, when there's fluid from the GI tract that goes into the lungs, and this can even cause things like pneumonia. Can you talk to us about aspiration from a pulmonary specialist point of view? In layman's terms? Uh, Oh, yes. (laughs) Aspiration is a fairly common thing that can happen during labor or after delivery. Remember, you are pushing, so if you have stomach contents, they can move from your stomach up the esophagus and end up in your lungs. Why is this happening? It's really because there's increased interabdominal pressure. There's more pressure as we're pushing that baby that forces it out. And typically when patients are delivering, you know, they're somewhat in a supine position, meaning they're lying on their backs. That makes it easier for gastric contents to leave 
the stomach and end up in the lungs. We do use some analgesia and also some sedation when we're taking care of a pregnant patient. So that also increases your risk of aspiration. And uh, some patients who are unfortunate might need intubation because maybe they're in respiratory failure. And we know when we intubate a patient, we put a tube down your throat, it stimulates the cords and the cords make you want to vomit. So that increases the risk of aspiration, pneumonia. And not all aspiration needs antibiotics, especially in obstetrics. We don't always give antibiotics. We usually say it's a chemical aspiration, and then we monitor that patient. We do zero x-rays. If we see pneumonia developing, then maybe that's when we give antibiotics. Wow. So you talked about, you know, the vocal cords in the process of intubation. The vocal cords can be made excited. Can you just speak to that again? Because I'm going to talk about that separately. So in, in case... A woman has, for instance, a need for an emergency C-section. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everything has to move fast. She has to be intubated and put under general anesthesia. Mm-hmm. There's still a small risk that there can be aspiration of the contents of the stomach yes. going into the lungs. Can you just tell us how that could happen and what it could lead to? Yes. As a pulmonologist, I get to do a lot of procedures where I have to go through the vocal cords with my bronchoscope. When we go through the vocal cords, the vocal cords are easily irritated. And when I am doing bronchoscopy, I actually spray an anesthetic called lidocaine to calm down the vocal cords. Each time when you go through the vocal cords, you stimulate, we would call it a gag reflex, but it's really you stimulate your stomach to squeeze and and to shorten, and that causes the contents of the stomach to go through the esophagus to end up in your mouth, and from your mouth they drip down into your lungs because also your vocal cords are open. Whenever you have introduced a cord through your vocal cords, the material which is in your mouth is able to go in your lungs and end up with an aspiration pneumonia. And so uh, when, when the woman develops aspiration pneumonia, you, you had talked yes. about the management. Yeah, not yeah. all women who mm. develop aspiration pneumonia require antibiotics. Mm. We usually call it chemical pneumonitis, and we follow that patient, and if they subsequently develop fever or the x-ray is continually worsening, then we consider antibiotics. How do we know clinically that the woman has aspiration pneumonia when she wakes up from surgery, for instance? When she wakes up from surgery, now that's where vital signs are vital. We monitor your respiratory rate. We look at your oxygen saturation. We look at your blood pressure. We also look at things like your urine output. So after we look at that, if we still have a high suspicion, then maybe we'll we consider doing a chest x-ray, and we follow up the chest x-ray. There are multiple scoring methods that are used to score possible aspiration. There are many clinical scores, but really what they involve is your vital signs, some blood work, some will include the white cell count, and your chest x-ray. 
And we also do calculate what is called the PA, which is your oxygen in your blood. And then we compare it to the amount of oxygen we're giving you, which is FiO2 ratio. Mm -hmm. When your ratio is less than 300, we know that there's some injury to your lung. So when we have all those factors, then we think the person has aspirated. And also always, we have the option of doing bronchoscopy with washing out of the lungs. Remember when somebody aspirates from the stomach, not everything has been digested. So sometimes you have particulate material. And the particulate material, the lung does not have enzymes to destroy that. So when we have massive aspiration, it is probably empiric for the pulmonologist to go in and wash out the lungs, not only to get a sample, but also to clear out the debris in the, in the lungs that the body cannot clear. Wow, wow, thank you. You know, just in closing, if you are going to advise for your career, what is the training path? What are the, if you are going to advise some of our, our students listening on this today, how do you become a pulmonologist, critical care specialist, and what are the pearls that you might want to give the younger up-and-coming students? So becoming a pulmonary critical care specialist I think is a good path for the upcoming physician. We know that the presence of pulmonary conditions is not decreasing. The number of patients who have COPD is not likely to reduce anytime soon. It's likely to actually increase. So it is a dynamic field where we are seeing a lot of research and companies bringing new innovation into the care of that patient with COPD. COPD, by the way, is now the fourth leading cause of death in the United That's States. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Is the fourth leading cause fourth of death. Fourth leading cause of death. Mm. The problem that has been with COPD is there is no intervention mm. to stop its progression unlike heart disease and all these other conditions. Also, in the realm of pulmonary medicine, we have lung cancer. It really was an ignored area. It's now prominent. Lung cancer is the leading cancer cause of death. In all people. In all people. Including women. Including women. They have seen interventions in breast cancer that have worked. Colon cancer has worked. But for the lung, it was mostly ignored. So now we now have new criteria, new screening that is being done. Zero CT scanning is being done. There's new biopsy methods that we are currently now starting to introduce. So for the up-and-coming young physician, this area of pulmonary disease is dynamic it's a growth area. There are more and uh, new interesting innovations coming up. So just on the pulmonary side, I think you can make a good career helping people, helping them get better and improving their lives. Critical care will continue as a subspecialty 
for a long time because once a patient gets very sick, they end up in the ICU. It's a very dynamic place. For those who are interested in interventions, you're able to do quite a lot. It's very fast and it's exciting. Depending on what you are thinking of doing, you know, the mixture of pulmonary and critical care can be very good for you and it can be a good career where you will enjoy what you do and enjoy helping others. Wow. So, wow, this has been a great time with Dr. Gerald Tawanda Tarira, who is the Chief Medical Director of Southern Lung Center in the Middle Georgia area. Dr. Tarira, thank you so much for just the education that you've given us today, just, you know, helping women and just helping people in general. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me, and I've thoroughly enjoyed the visit. Thank you. Thank you.